One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders past and present. It's the morning of Monday the 29th of April 1940 and at the RAAF recruiting office in Woolloomooloo in Sydney, Leonard Graham Fuller is about to sign his life away. Well, hopefully not his whole life, but his life as it says on his attestation paper, for the duration of the war and 12 months thereafter. How long the present war will be fought is anyone's guess. It's been going for nearly eight months already, ever since Hitler sent his Nazi goons blitzkrieging their way into Poland last September. Yet since then, England and Germany haven't engaged in major offensive battles. So the whole show's been dubbed The Phony War. But it's getting real now. Now the Nazis have invaded Norway and are forcing British and French forces into retreat. France is on tenterhooks at the prospect of being next to face the Nazi Blitzkrieg. In Sydney's The Sun newspaper today, an editorial poses the question, should Britain bomb Berlin? To this point, the British and the Germans have refrained from attacking each other's cities, but with each passing day, it seems that anything could be on the cards in this war. What's definitely on the table, at least for young Len Fuller, is his RAAF papers. Once they're filled in and signed, he'll be an Air Force man. In the past couple of months, Len and 60,000 other young Australian blokes have put their hands up for the hugely ambitious Empire Air Training Scheme. This program is to speedily turn young men like Len into air and ground crew, who'll be sent to Britain to serve with the RAF and fight the Germans. Len is in the very first batch of just 26 men from New South Wales who've been called up to fill that most coveted of roles, pilot. Answering the call this morning, Len's been given another quick medical and eyesight test, just to ensure he's still in the same top shape he was when he volunteered. Len, 21 years old, standing 5'10", weighing 142 pounds, with a 33-inch chest, is all good in that regard. He's as fit as a bull and has eyes like a hawk. This fair-haired, brown-eyed lad, now living in Bondi but raised in Cootamundra, is nothing if not the best of city and country, a strapping specimen of Australian manhood. The RAAF authorising officer sees to it that Len's form is typed up with all of his particulars. Now, this new recruit takes the oath and signs his name. It's a proud moment. 
It seems that Len's whole life has pointed towards this, that somehow he's been born and raised to fly and to fight. Paperwork done, Len and other recruits are taken out to Mascot where they'll begin their training. These young men are from very different backgrounds and very different walks of life. But the fact that they're to train first for the toughest job and thus be the first to represent the RAAF's contribution to the RAF under the Empire Air Scheme makes them the best of the best of the thousands and thousands of applicants who've already been accepted. Yet Len Fuller is to stand apart from all of these men in the first intake and in the hundreds of intakes to follow. That's because exactly five months from today, this trainee pilot will be at the controls of a bomber half a mile in the sky fighting a life or death battle that's unique in military aviation history. The outcome will make Len Fuller famous in Australia and around the world. And for better and for worse, it'll come to define his whole life. I'm Michael Adams, this is Forgotten Australia, and you're listening to the first episode of Season 7, RAAF hero Len Fuller, Part 1, Born to Fly and Fight. Parts 2 and 3 will be on general release in the next two weeks. If you'd like to see photos of the people and events discussed in this episode, I'll be posting some at the Forgotten Australia Facebook page. Find it at facebook.com forward slash Forgotten Oz, F-O-R-G-O-T-T-E-N-O-Z. In recent Forgotten Australia episodes, we've looked at long shot odds, at freakish luck, both life-saving and life-taking. This chronicle of RAAF hero Len Fuller continues that theme. The ancient Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca is credited with saying, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. That can be true. Some good luck is what happens when those conditions are met. But other luck, both good and bad, was summed up just 40 years ago in a more succinct phrase that was coined by an unidentified young female student from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. It goes like this. Shit happens. Certainly, it was this sort of luck that would determine whether many RAAF men like Len Fuller lived or died during World War II. Aussies who served in RAF Bomber Command had a name for what they were doing day after day and night after night. They called it dicing, as in playing dice with death. This episode's about preparation, meeting opportunity and producing luck, but it's also about dicing. Len Fuller's place in history came about thanks to both during the mid-air miracle that we're going to hear all about in part two. Now, this event is not unknown, but it's also not widely known. And where it has been told, the tellings have been far from complete. 1940 newspaper accounts did explain what had happened in the Mid-Air Miracle. But what we're going to do is look at how Len's life prepared him to take advantage of the opportunities presented to him in those few desperate minutes. Contemporary reports didn't do this. Nor did they provide context. That was because they didn't need to. In September 1940, the Australian public knew the stakes. Their tabloid and broadsheet newspapers, their radio news bulletins and their cinema newsreels had for months been filled first by the Battle of Britain and then the London Blitz. During this time, the Australian public was also horrified by a tragic succession of RAAF catastrophes that killed dozens of men. But for us, more than 80 years later, to better understand the meaning of Len Fuller's achievement, it's useful to be reminded of how that year had unfolded and how bleak the future had looked. Similarly, the 1940s newspapers, when they did chart Len Fuller's life, the slights he endured and the fights that he won and lost, were limited in what they could or would report to the public. These limits were dictated by the RAAF and then by the RAF, by wartime censorship and by the resources and news values of various newspaper editors. But we're able to go back and to go beyond. 
We can do this via personal and family records at Ancestry.com.au. Via digitised RAAF personnel and accident files found at the National Archives of Australia and RAF Squadron operational reports and summaries found at the British National Archives. We can learn a lot via historic newspapers in the National Library of Australia's Trove database and in a few excellent biographies and Air Force histories. Using these sources, it's possible to have a better appreciation of Len Fuller and of his world at war, of why he was where he was and how he did what he did. Telling Len's story also gives us a glimpse into what it was like for the 125,000 volunteers who served in the RAF's Bomber Command. This was by far the most dangerous battlefront of World War II. Some 55,500 of those men would be killed in operations. Another 8,000 would die in training and non-operational flights. Think of that in terms of dicing of rolling an eight-sided dice. If it comes up one, two, three, or four, you're dead. If it comes up five or six, you'll be either seriously wounded and or become a prisoner of war. But only if you roll a seven or an eight do you come back from the war unscathed, at least physically. Australia's War Memorial records that more than one in three RAAF men who flew in the RAF units of Bomber Command would not come home. All up, 4,149 members of the RAAF were killed, including 610 in training units. Yet hundreds more Australians never even got to England. They were killed in training, in home skies and on home soil. This episode remembers those sacrifices. Like father, like son. This saying isn't always true, but the more I looked into Len Fuller's background, the larger his father loomed in so many ways. According to records found at Ancestry.com.au, Len's dad, William Fuller, known as Bill, was born in Surrey, England in 1884. But when the Great War broke out on the 4th of August 1914, Bill was living in Sydney and was about to turn 30. Over the next four years, 416,809 men would enlist in the Australian Armed Forces. And we often read about the rush to sign up. Well, Bill Fuller was at the very tip of that spear. He enlisted for the Australian Naval and Military Expedition on the 5th of August, In other words, within hours of news reaching Sydney. Bill Fuller's attestation paper bears the number 100. He was to serve as a private in A Company, which was commanded by Major Robert Beardsmore. Robert Beardsmore is that conservative Forrest Gump of early 20th century Australian history who we heard about in the first dismissal series last year. Two weeks after enlisting, Bill Fuller and other men of the Expeditionary Force marched through Sydney to the sounds of brass bands and cheering men, women and children. One month later, tasked with ousting the Germans from New Guinea, they were the first Australian soldiers of the Great War to see combat and to suffer casualties. Bill Fuller's record at the National Archives of Australia shows that his duties included escorting enemy prisoners in Rabaul in the wake of Australia's victory. He returned to Sydney in March 1915 with the rest of the expeditionary force and was honourably discharged. In June 1915, Bill married Daisy Sapphire May Mitchell Moore, the only daughter of a well-known manly ferry captain. They were to live in Cootamundra, 240 miles southwest of Sydney. Bill wasn't expected to serve further because he was a veteran, because he was a married man and because he was a father which he became when Daisy gave birth to their first child, son Nigel, in 1916. Their second boy, Leonard Graham Fuller, was born on the 9th of August 1918. Len was reportedly named in honour of his uncle, a heroic military aviator who'd recently been shot down and killed. But the day that Len was born marked a turning point in the Great War. The latest Allied offensive successes seemed decisive. That day, the Sydney Morning Herald reported, 
We are justified in saying that the situation is more favourable than at any time since 1914. We have overwhelming evidence of Germany's declining manpower and can say the end is in sight. Len's dad, Bill, who worked as a sales agent, had been doing his bit for the war effort in Kutamundra, which then had a population of 3,500. In the two months after Len was born, his dad organised a huge fundraising war chest carnival. Bill, who had the ear of the Kutamundra Herald newspaper, appealed to his fellow townsfolk, quote, Come in, join the fun, go mad, buy confetti, flowers, etc. Kick up all the noise you can. See that you decorate your trap, horse or car. Come in fancy costume and be in on the joke. Give your town and district a boost at the same time. Show others that we are not stagnant, cold and dead. Bill's gala event was planned for the 30th of November. But the good news the world had been waiting for arrived in Kutamundra on the evening of the 11th of that month. The guns had fallen silent on the Western Front. The war to end all wars had come to an end. Bill Fuller hastily organised a weekend festival to celebrate the armistice. Yet the peace wasn't going to stop his mighty war chest carnival. The funds would still go to good causes, and the Cooter Herald said they'd never seen anyone so indefatigable as Bill, the self-appointed street marshal in charge, during the festival that went ahead as planned. There he was on horseback, revving up the revellers during the street procession, amid showers of paper flying in the monster confetti war that Bill had organised. The first year of Little Lynn Fuller's life roughly coincided with the coming and going of the Spanish flu. Thanks to its remoteness, Cudamundra suffered less than other places. Lynn was to grow up in peace that allowed prosperity but he came close to doing so without his father. In September 1919, Bill Fuller was alone in his motor car and racing up a hill at Gundagai when his steering failed. Bill hit the brakes, the car skidded off the road, and he and it plunged off an embankment into a washaway that was 14 feet deep. The Cootamundra Herald reported, quote, Photos of the car as she finished up in the hole reveal the narrow escape the driver had. As for Bill's injuries, he got skinned knees. Bill had suffered very bad luck, followed by very good luck. Perhaps his preparation, his army training, his war experiences, his ability to act under pressure had played a part in him being able to save himself. But it also seems probable that if he'd been going slower, the accident wouldn't have been so bad. One thing for sure, it would have been a damned shame to die in a possibly avoidable crash on a lonely country road. As it turned out, Bill hadn't, and the town could give thanks. As the Cooter Herald said, quote, One thing Cootamundra will be glad to know, that it did not lose Bill Fuller. If Cootamundra had lost Bill Fuller, then it likely wouldn't have become an early Australian aviation hub and his son Len wouldn't have grown up with his eyes on the sky and in the company of heroic pilots of the Great War. That conflict had been notable as a showcase for new and terrible technologies. Yet there was little romance in machine guns, barbed wire, gas bombs and armoured tanks. But there was plenty of chivalry and gallantry in tales of the new knights of the air dueling in their flying machines across the smoky heavens over the Western Front. And after the war, civil aviation continued to capture Australia's imagination. Often, it was the very pilot heroes of the Great War who brought their soaring and roaring biplanes down from the wild blue yonder to land in stubbly green paddocks filled with people who'd never seen an aviator or an aeroplane before. Cootamundra was geographically blessed as a midway point on air routes between Sydney and Melbourne and Sydney and Adelaide. In the couple of years after the war ended, the town welcomed more than a dozen war hero pilots, including Sir Ross Smith and Sir Keith Smith, right after they'd won the great air race from England. Yet, when this who's who of Australian aviators came to Cootamundra, they had to make do with landing in rough paddocks. Seeing that flight was the future, 
Bill Fuller, who'd been elected to Cootamundra Council in January 1920, wanted to do better than that. The town, he said, needed to have a proper aerodrome. A sizable paddock that was properly levelled, made free of nasty thistles and other obstructions. There needed to be a permanent landing strip that was delineated by proper markers visible from the air. Aviators also needed to be able to avail themselves of fuel and have a feed. Bill Fuller had the if-we-build-it-they-will-come mentality. If pilots could safely and conveniently refresh themselves and their machines, they would visit more often. They'd spread the word, and that would bring profit and progress to Cootamundra. Councilman Bill Fuller made it his mission to drum up support and funding for Cootamundra's aerodrome. His enthusiasm could only have been intensified by the various flying visits of Flight Lieutenant Nigel Love, Australian Flying Corps hero who'd been present at the burial of the Red Baron on the Western Front. While he's fairly obscure now, at this time Nigel Love was a household name. He'd done more than anyone else to bring aviation to the Australian people. Nigel was the managing director and co-founder of the Sydney-based pioneering aviation company, the Australian Aircraft and Engineering Company Limited. As such, Nigel had needed an aerodrome. So in November 1919, he'd leased a couple of hundred acres of unused bullet paddock at Mascot, thrown up a canvas hangar, unboxed one of the Avro biplanes for which he was Australian agent, and then made the first ever flight from what was to become our biggest international airport. Nigel would soon be offering regular advertised passenger flights. Rock up to Mascot with four guineas and you could take to the air. In February 1920, Nigel did a two-week aerial tour of the Riverina in a three-seater Avro biplane. The bicyclist and explorer Francis Bertels was his passenger and made a film of their adventures, which included a stopover at Cootamundra. Now, it's not clear where Len's dad was when Nigel Love's plane touched down in a paddock on the 4th of February. But Len's mum, Daisy, was there, and she was game, despite being pregnant with her third son, who'd be born three months later. As the Cooter Herald reported, quote, Mrs W. Fuller was the first to take a passenger flight with Lieutenant Love, and was 20 minutes in the air, experiencing the thrills of a vertical spiral, a roll, and several stalling turns, which she enjoyed immensely. In April 1920, Nigel Love became the first pilot to take a commercial customer from Sydney to Melbourne, with Cootamundra one of his stop-offs. Then, in September, he set off on a tour of New South Wales on behalf of Burgess Paints, his passenger being a company representative. This time around, Bill Fuller got his turn, and the stunts that Nigel Love pulled off with him in the passenger seat included an Immelmann. This was named for the German Great War ace Max Immelmann. To do it, the pilot pulled back on the controls so his plane shot up into the sky. With the aircraft approaching a stall, the pilot began the loop, but then quickly turned the plane right side up so he'd end up flying level in the opposite direction to where he'd started and at a much higher altitude. Doing this and other stunts in an open cockpit screaming biplane wasn't something you'd forget in a hurry. By the time that Bill Fuller went up for a stunt flight, his son Len had turned too. So there's a chance that he remembered his dad up there in the upside down plane high in the sky. Even if Len didn't really remember this, it might have seemed like he did. And it might have even seemed like he remembered his mum's flight. That's because his parents surely told and retold their thrilling tales, as anyone still would. By December 1920, Bill had collected £10 from townsfolk towards proper landing guides for the aerodrome. But there was still plenty of work to do. In February 1921, another well-known aviator, Edgar Percival, complained that every time he landed in Cootamundra, his tyres ended up being punctured by thistles. The Cootamundra Herald reported, quote, 
we assured him that it would be put right when Bill Fuller returned from his holidays, if not before. Alderman Fuller is the airman's friend. With further public donations, Bill ensured that the farmer whose paddock was now being used used his disc harrows to make that surface clean and smooth and safe. Thanks to Bill prodding his fellow citizens and councilmen, Kudamundra got a permanent aerodrome of which it could be proud. Soon the Defence Department would be using it for flights. In time, the Kudamundra Aerodrome would become the terminus for the International Airmail Route and an important new RAAF base under the Empire Air Training Scheme. But those developments were in the future. In the early 1920s, Bill offered a more personal touch to help put his town on the map. As the local RAG reported in March 1921, he receives all the plain men and makes them feel at home in Kudamundra. The social side of these activities must cost the local enthusiast a fair amount in time and cash, but he does not mind, he says, so long as eventually this centre becomes the officially recognised calling place, as it is entitled to be by reason of its halfway distance between the cities. Bill could speak the language of pilots too because he learned to fly, and later that year spent several months away in a plane. The Kunamundra Herald said Bill's airfield would bring progress just as surely as the railway had last century, and it would help usher in the coming city of Kutamundra. The paper predicted, In those far-off days, the Kutaites will think kindly of the memory of the man responsible. Probably in the schools, when the local history is discussed, the boys and girls will be told about an early alderman by the name of Bill Fuller. Whether the local curriculum was changed isn't recorded, but Bill surely inspired awe in at least three children, his sons. Right at the infancy of Australian aviation, little Len Fuller was raised by parents who'd both been up in a plane and who regularly hosted the country's most famous and daring pilots. Len also grew up with a father who was big on service. Bill, justifiably proud of being one of the first to fight in the Great War, was elected president of Kutamundra's Returned Soldiers Association in February 1922. As such, he was involved in efforts to erect a memorial to the town's fallen men. But raising enough money, let alone coordinating citizens and councillors and memorial committee members, wasn't something that happened overnight. In a letter to the Kutamundra Herald, one returned soldier bitterly blasted Bill for being all talk and no action. Old soldier Bill fired right back with both barrels, at least in the letters page, and came close to slandering the man as he set him straight on the complexities of the issue. Kutamundra would get its memorial, built in the town's Albert Park, it was unveiled on Armistice Day in 1923, with a crowd of 2,000 people turning out. Len Fuller was now five years old. Likely, he was made to understand why there were 88 Kutamundra men's names listed on that memorial. Len may also have gotten the gist of a speech given by one of his father's fellow councillors that day. The Kuta Herald reported the councillor's speech as depicting the plight of mothers who had to send their sons off to fight. Quote, then came the war cloud and the trying moments when mothers had to choose between love and duty. They trusted in God and did the right. Then came the long suspense and to some the call of the clergyman to say, your son is killed. Maybe on that armistice day, Daisy Fuller held her little boys closer to her and hoped that such a day would never come again. The next month, December 1923, Bill's patriotism was on display in Queenbian when Dr Earl Page unveiled that town's war memorial. £850 of the £1,000 it had cost to erect had been raised as a result of Bill organising another massive fundraising carnival. Dr Earl Page, whose ascendancy we heard about recently in the Bolts from the Blue episode, was Australia's new political power broker as leader of the country party and deputy to Prime Minister Stanley Bruce. 
Dr Page commended Bill Fuller on his splendid work and presented him with a beautiful inscribed case of cutlery. In mid-1920s Australia, Bill stood out from the crowd in other ways too. He was for a time the agent for General Motors in the Cootamundra district, handling sales of Chevrolet, Oldsmobile, Buick, Cadillac and other models. That meant Len and his brothers had an automotive upbringing when many people hadn't even yet had a ride in a motor car. Their dad was also an early adopter of radio, tinkering with his wireless set by June of 1924, and, as the Cooter Herald put it, listening in everywhere. But it was the aerodrome that remained Bill's claim to fame. In January 1925, thanks to his efforts, a regular commercial air service was able to start there with a four-seater plane offering passenger flights between Cootamundra, Sydney, Narandra, Hay, Mildura and Adelaide. Planes had become so frequent that the Cooter Herald reported, one hardly looks upon hearing them aloft. But this wouldn't have included boys like Len, who was now seven. His eyes would have been drawn to the sky every time, dreaming of the day he'd get to fly. Bill Fuller's efforts and experiences, from being the first to fight in the Great War to working as a military morale booster, from surviving a bad car crash to flying and stunting in planes, from playing host to other pilots to being commended by politicians, from being lionised in the newspapers to giving speeches at charity dinners, must have been much admired by his three little boys. But how much did Bill directly influence Len? We can't know for sure. But Len's nurture and his nature constituted a large part of his preparation, and they also directed his choices which then led him to be tossed around by good and bad luck. In March 1927, Bill Fuller moved his family from Cootamundra to Sydney. Though they retained a meat and wheat farm in the Riverina, the Fullers would now live at Rose Bay, and Len would finish his education at Sydney Grammar. To support the family, Bill worked as an inspector and a salesman. It's not certain how the Great Depression affected the family's fortunes, but the economic hardship may have contributed to them moving to Bondi in the early 1930s. Len obtained his intermediate certificate and left school around 1932. He grew into a tall, sporty, fair-haired lad with a nice face that really lit up when he smiled his big wide smile. Not that there was a lot to smile about during the hardest years of the Depression. Leaving school then would have meant limited job opportunities. Len, likely helped along by what he'd learned about motor cars from his old man, got work in Sydney as a driving instructor. But at some point, also perhaps a little like his old man, he was found guilty of two minor traffic offences. This might have been why he wound up selling cars, again like his dad, rather than continuing to teach people how to drive them. Understandably, given how he'd grown up in Cooter, Len was crazy about planes and he spent some of his wages on private flying lessons at Mascot, now well progressed past the bullock paddock it had been 20 years earlier when first leased by Nigel Love. At Mascot, Len racked up 30 hours in the air, and he qualified for the A-class license that allowed him to do solo flights in small planes. At the start of September 1939, the world's fears were realised when Hitler invaded Poland and England declared war on Germany. However this new war was to play out, it was clear from the start that military aviation would be a decisive factor, perhaps the decisive factor. Britain's political and military leadership felt confident that it could build the fighters and bombers it had need for the war against Germany. But crewing these planes, that was a different matter. In December 1939, Australia committed to the Empire Air Training Scheme. Put simply, the air forces of Canada, Australia and New Zealand were to recruit and train airmen and send them to the RAF. Our participation was negotiated by Australia's Minister for Air, the dashing young James Fairburn. 
He'd been a Great War aviator, and he'd survived being shot down. Later, as a civilian pilot, he'd survived another crash landing. Even now, in government, he'd fly himself here and there around Australia on official business. Under the Empire Air Training Scheme, Mr Fairbairn agreed, Australia would supply 57,000 men over the next three years. Here's how he broke it down. There were to be 14,300 pilots, 16,173 gunners, and 27,000 ground staff. It sounds massive because it was. But to get an idea of exactly how massive at this time, consider that in September 1939, the RAAF had just 3,500 men, the same population as Cootamundra. Australia's Air Force had 164 aircraft, about half of which were obsolete biplanes. The RAAF had one flying school, with 16 instructors. All of that was going to have to change at lightning speed. Len Fuller's life changed when the details of the air training scheme were made public at the start of February 1940. A recruitment poster from this time showed a smiling, jumpsuited pilot, goggles on his head, headphones on his ears, parachute pack casually slung off one hip, giving a waving thumbs up as he climbed into the cockpit of a Spitfire. The advertisement read, Coming? Then hurry! Air crews wanted now for the RAAF. To be eligible as an air scheme pilot, you needed to be over 18 and under 27. Len Fuller was 21 and 6 months. Applicants would also need at least intermediate education. Len not only had that, he'd gotten it at Sydney Grammar. Applicants also had to be, quote, British subjects of pure European descent, the sons of parents, both of whom are British subjects. Len ticked that box too. According to Ancestry.com.au records, Len's father Bill had been born in Surrey, and while his mother had been born in Australia, her father had been born in Devonshire. Air scheme applicants who met these basic criteria would appear before a board. If they liked the cut of your jib and you could pass the medical, you'd be enlisted in the Air Force Reserve for the duration of the war and for 12 months afterwards. Then you'd wait to be called up. The few who were called to be pilots would be in a preliminary ground training course for four weeks. Those who passed that would attain the rank of leading aircraftsman, abbreviated to LAC. LACs would then do eight weeks of elementary flying training. Keep passing and keep breathing and you'd do a further 16 weeks of intermediate and then advanced flying at special service flying training schools. Upon graduation, half of the pilots would receive commissioned rank while the other half would become flight sergeants. The response to the opening of air scheme applications was phenomenal. 60,000 by the end of April and eventually nearly double that. From a fairly narrow eligibility class, 120,000 men applied, back when Australia's entire population was 7 million. Like his father, Len Fuller was among the first to put up his hand. He was soon before the selection board. How did they rate him? Given the emphasis on family, the selectors were surely impressed by his father's Great War service and by Bill's role in creating the Cootamundra Aerodrome, given it had just been made a key RAAF air scheme training school for applicants who'd be chosen to be observers. That Len was named for a heroic fighter pilot, that he'd grown up with airfields and planes, that he'd gone to Sydney Grammar, and that he already had his A-class pilot's licence, well, none of these things would have gone against him. Another plus was that he'd worked as a driving instructor, this was because Australian RAAF pilots, who survived 30 missions with the RAF, would then be required to go to a training school, become an instructor, and teach new recruits. Of the initial onslaught of air scheme hopefuls, around 15,000 men had been accepted by late April. 9,300 of these were selected as ground crew. 
around 4,900 were on the list to be aircrew, and this included Len Fuller. These were huge numbers, but there was a huge problem. Until this point, RAAF pilots had been made at the number one flying training school at Point Cook in Victoria. Number one, as in one and only. Now, to meet the requirements of the Empire Air Scheme, 12 elementary flight training schools and 8 service flight training schools were being established. The elementary schools were easier. They could be attached to active civilian aerodromes. But the service schools, where men would learn to fly to fight, had to be built from scratch. This was a bottleneck. Until all the elementary and service flight schools were operational, the RAAF would only be able to train men in small batches. So, all things being equal, Len Fuller might have waited months or even years. As it turned out, he didn't wait at all. Len was in the very first intake of pilots. His dad must have been so proud. Len, first and foremost, like father, like son. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Just before we continue, I'm delighted to announce that the next Forgotten Australia Book Club will celebrate 10 years of Gert. Of course, I'm talking about author David Hunt's trilogy of hilarious best-selling books about Australian history. They're called Gert, True Gert, and Gert Nation. All three Gerts are available wherever good books are sold, and in all formats, paperback, ebook, and audio. So, if you haven't already, give the Gerts a read or listen, and send your questions through for David Hunt, who'll be joining me for a chat about all things Gertie. If you want to be old school, you can email your questions to ForgottenAustraliaPodcast at gmail.com. But if you want to get down with the new tech and have more fun, take a minute to record a question with your phone or computer via speakpipe.com forward slash ForgottenAustralia. It sounds very cyber, but SpeakPipe is dead easy to use. You say your piece, click a button, and the audio file comes straight to me and then I can play your question for David during the book club episode. Those email and speak pipe addresses are in your show notes. Get your questions in by the 15th of November if you want to be part of the episode. Okay, on with Len Fuller's story. On the 29th of April 1940, Len Fuller, now aged 21 years and 8 months, said goodbye to the family home. He went to the RAAF's number two recruiting centre in Woolloomooloo. The place was busy. 71 other men from New South Wales had answered the call up here. Across Australia, another 220 were doing the same thing that day. 144 were to train as pilots at elementary flight training schools attached to aerodromes in New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria. Most recruits would never have been where they were sent. But Len was to do his pilot training somewhere very familiar, at the number 4 EFTS at Mascot. That afternoon, the Sun newspaper ran a photo of the 16 lads who'd been assigned to Mascot. Each was still in the suit he'd worn to the recruitment office. They were in a hangar, looking over one of the hopelessly outdated Tiger Moth biplanes they'd soon use for flight training. Soon use, that was, once they passed their four weeks of classroom lessons. Len Fuller got through that initial month and he received the rank of leading aircraftsman. LAC Fuller was to continue training at Mascot for the next two months. During those eight wintry weeks, the war escalated to horrific proportions. Here's what happened while Len was still at Mascot. Germany not content with rolling over Norway, unleashed its blitzkrieg of France, Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg. 
British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain resigned and Winston Churchill took over. The Nazis pushed the British and French soldiers back to Dunkirk. There, they were saved by allied blood, sweat and tears, and by the miraculous luck of Hitler's military miscalculations. Next, the French surrendered, the Nazis occupied Paris, and Italy entered the war on Germany's side. Then began the Battle of Britain. This was the prelude for Germany's planned invasion and conquest of the isolated British Isles. Len finished his elementary training at Mascot on the 22nd of July 1940, and he was sent to the RAAF No. 2 SFTS at Forest Hill outside Wagga. By the end of the year, this new base would be ballyhooed as an airport city, complete with a post office, modern hospital, sports oval and talkie cinema. But it was still under construction when Len started instruction there on the 29th of July. He was to train six days a week. A typical day would see Len up at 6.30 in the morning. He'd get dressed in his school uniform of khaki shirt and shorts, make his bunk and tidy his area of the quarters. He'd have breakfast from 6.45. At 7.30 it was parade and he and his fellow LACs would march to their classrooms. Lessons would keep them occupied until midday. After lunch, at 10 to 1, they'd march to the hangar for practical instruction and for flying lessons. They'd finish at 5. Then, it was a three-mile run around the Oval, followed by dinner at 6 in a dry canteen and leisure time until 8, when they were expected to do two and a half hours more study before lights out. Their course began with flight practice in a trainer that was a six-foot-long replica of a real service plane cockpit complete with every instrument and control. From there, they studied what went on behind the dashboard. They learned the ins and outs of engines and airframes and all the workings of Vickers machine guns and the components of dummy bombs. Under the guidance of instructors in the front seat, they did their fighter training at the controls of single-engined wearaways. Then, with instructors in the right cockpit seat, the students would take the left pilot seat of twin-engined Avro Anson bombers. The trainees learned how to handle them, make emergency landings and perform some of the moves needed for evasion, attack and bombing. Pass this eight-week intermediate course and they'd move on to advanced air training. When Len and his fellow LACs flew, they did so with their Australian-made Dominion brand parachutes close at hand. These were new additions to RAAF equipment. Dominion's trademark, stamped on each parachute, was a kangaroo under a canopy, above this motto in a scroll, I jump to live. Each of Dominion's silk lifesavers was meticulously hand-sewn and rigorously tested with a dummy before it was packed. Yet so far, no Dominion parachute had been used in a real-life compulsory bailout. Len was one of 44 trainee pilots from various elementary flying schools to be taken into Wagga as the first batch of intermediate students. Some of the instructors were barely older than Len, and it's very likely that the trainees were amused at the presence of one such superior. Not because of his youth, but because, despite the trainees coming from different parts of Australia, many of them would have seen him in the same place around the same time. That was at their local picture theatres in late 1936. See, Flying Officer John Weston, by now 22, had back then been a popular radio actor who'd made the jump to the silver screen as leading hunk in an Australian talkie called White Death. Shot on the Great Barrier Reef, White Death was a shark-hunting drama that had attracted a lot of publicity because it was written by, and starred, none other than Zane Grey mad keen American angler and adventurer, best-selling author, and the man who'd single-handedly given the world the Western genre. So young John Weston had got to hang out with the man himself, on and off screen, and he'd also played love scenes opposite beautiful young female newcomer Nola Warren. 
During production, John Weston had gotten into all sorts of dangerous situations that had been duly chronicled in the newspapers as part of the movie's publicity machine. When it was released, White Death had done okay at the box office, and John had been heralded by numerous Australian newspapers and even by American trade mag Variety as a really promising screen talent. But local film production took a nosedive at the end of 1936. So John returned to radio and became the ABC's principal male dramatic performer. This was the sort of path that Peter Finch trod before he became an international film superstar. But that life wasn't for John Weston. In late 1937, he chucked it all in to join the Air Force, telling the Daily Telegraph, quote, Acting is a pleasant profession, but flying's a man's life. John Weston trained at Point Cook in 1938. After the war started, he'd even flown a mission off the New South Wales coast hunting for a German U-boat. With experienced pilots desperately needed to teach Empire Air Scheme recruits, John was sent to Camden Flying Instructor School in April 1940. Then he was posted to Wagga in time to start training Len and his comrades. While the skies over Australia were free of enemy flak and fighters, RAAF training and operational flying was incredibly dangerous. The majority of qualified pilots didn't have a lot of experience, and the skies were now filled with the recruits being rushed through training to meet the war demand. Radar was in its infancy internationally and hadn't reached our shores. Most planes weren't even equipped with radios. Added to all of this were aircraft that seemed prone to drop out of Australian skies. One such plane was the British-made Avro Anson. Nicknamed Aggies, they'd been flown by the RAAF from early 1937. On the 29th of April 1938, an Aggie crashed near Liverpool. All three crew members were killed. On the 10th of August 1938, an Aggie crashed near Dramana in Victoria. Four of the five crew died. On the 18th of December 1938, all five crew members aboard an Aggie were killed when it crashed near Richmond. That was 12 deaths in 1938. The next year, another three separate Aggie crashes left no survivors and another dozen men dead. These disasters and half a dozen other civilian and RAAF crashes since the start of 1938 were recounted in the Daily Telegraph on the 14th of August 1940. What was the reason for this roll call of tragedy? It was because the day before, the 13th of August, there'd been a 13th catastrophe. This one really changed Australian history. Prime Minister Robert Menzies had called a meeting of his cabinet in Canberra that day. They were needed to discuss the war crisis. One of the RAAF's new Hudson planes would fly numerous ministers up from Melbourne. Not just any ministers. Australia's wartime cabinet was on board. Between them, these men had extraordinary military experience. This included 43-year-old James Fairburn, that dashing Great War pilot who, as the Air Minister over the past year, had done everything in his power to get the Empire Air Training Scheme off the ground. Also on board the Hudson was the Minister for the Army, Geoffrey Smart, aged 46. As a lad, he'd landed at Gallipoli on the 25th of April 1915, and he'd been wounded that day. Sir Henry Gullett, the 62-year-old Minister for Information, was another VIP passenger on the Hudson. Sir Henry had served on the Western Front and he'd been Prime Minister Billy Hughes's press man at the Treaty of Versailles. Most eminent of them all was General Sir Brudenell White, aged 63, the Chief of the General Staff. He'd served in the Boer War, been a founding member of the Australian Army, supervised the deployment of the AIF in 1914 and the following year been Chief of Staff at Gallipoli. General Sir Brudenell White had masterminded the silent evacuation at Gallipoli and then he'd run ANZAC operations on the Western Front. Just before 11 on the morning of the 13th of August 1940, 
the Hudson plane was approaching Canberra. It circled the aerodrome, came in for a gliding descent, and then suddenly dipped a wing and veered away. Then, when that turn was complete, the Hudson's nose dipped, it spiralled, and despite a valiant attempt by the pilot to bring the plane down safely in a clearing, the Hudson hit a log on the ground and it exploded. All ten men aboard were killed. Australia's wartime leadership was decimated in an instant. The reason for the crash was never determined, and it's ever since been the cause of conjecture. Whatever the cause, one of the effects was this. Country Party MP Arthur Fadden would take over as Air Minister. It was a strange and dark twist of fate because Mr Fadden had been offered a seat on the Hudson, but had knocked it back because it was too much of a bother to cancel his train ticket to Canberra. With Mr Fadden's life saved by this trivial decision, he would now have authority over the investigation into the catastrophe that could have killed him. Mr Fadden would also wield similar power in other air crash investigations, of which there were to be three more in quick succession. On the day that Len Fuller had enlisted in the RAAF, back at the end of April, the question had been asked, should Britain bomb Berlin? On Friday the 30th of August 1940, the question was resolutely answered. A few days earlier, a small group of German bombers had missed their nighttime targets and mistakenly dropped their high explosives on London, killing civilians and destroying buildings. Prime Minister Winston Churchill had ordered a retaliatory strike on Berlin. Now the Sun's front page screamed, Berlin rocks under British bombs. Big works become white-hot furnaces. Great adventure for RAF. Fortune couldn't buy a seat in squadrons. How exciting. Every RAF man wanted a seat in a bomber. This was enough to put the wind beneath any RAAF trainee pilot's wings. Len and the men of the first intake would be there soon enough. They were nearing the end of their intermediate training and were up to nighttime flying exercises. At 10.45 that night, the 30th of August, LAC Thomas Tweedy of South Brisbane was taking his Wirral way up to do circuits. Tom Tweedy was two weeks shy of his 23rd birthday. Nicknamed Snowy, he was one of the most popular trainees at Forest Hill. Tom had also been one of the very best applicants, and he'd come into the first batch of pilots with even more experience than Len Fuller. Tom had gotten his pilot's license in Queensland, and by the time he joined the RAAF, he'd already done 130 hours of civilian flying, nearly 100 of these solo. On this night, he was under the supervision of 25-year-old flying officer Brian Monckton. Tom Tweedy had to take off, fly the Wirraway in a circle a few miles across until he was back over the aerodrome, put his wheels down, bring his plane into land, and then repeat. He did this twice, no worries, and then went up for the third and final circuit of the night. Tom Tweedy was about 400 feet in the air, about two miles from where he'd taken off, when his plane's starboard wing dropped and the plane dived practically to the level of the trees. Then it flattened out. Seemingly, he was trying to regain control, but it was too late. Tom hit the ground and the Wirraway exploded in a ball of flame. RAAF ambulance and fire crews raced to the scene, but there was nothing they could do. The wings, engine and other debris were spread over a radius of up to 300 yards. Flying officer Monkton's theory was that Tom had just lifted off and was raising his wheels so the red light for the landing gear would have still been on and glowing in the cockpit. This might have impaired Tom's vision just enough that he didn't realise he'd dipped a wing and was about to hurtle into the ground. If there was any mercy, the Sun newspaper reported it. Death was apparently instantaneous. Yet every pilot and every imaginative reader, had to think that while death was instantaneous, the seconds in which he knew it was imminent might have stretched for what seemed like an awfully long time. It was entirely possible that Tom had known he'd made a mistake, 
that he'd tried to set it right, that he'd realized he wasn't going to make it, that he was too low, going too fast to use his Dominion parachute. Just two weeks into his new job, Air Minister Arthur Fadden expressed sympathy for Tom's loved ones and said that an inquiry would be held. When it was, no cause for the crash would be established. Wagga Wagga's newspaper, The Daily Advertiser, said that Tom Tweedy's death had, quote, cast a pall of gloom over the school. His funeral was to be held in Brisbane. So, on the day after his death, six members of the RAAF carried Tom Tweedy's casket from a hearse to the mail train. Officers and trainees formed an honour guard. The men may have been gloomy, but that didn't stop them from copping hell from the base's commanding officer. Wagga's No. 2 SFTS had suffered its first fatality. LAC Tweedy's death was front-page news everywhere. That sort of publicity reflected well on no one. Yet, in a way, this was real war training. Doing active RAF service in Europe would come with no guarantees that you'd survive. But if you did survive, you could be guaranteed that you would lose good mates. By the time Tom Tweedy's body had been put on the train for Brisbane, the war had again changed dramatically. Churchill's tit-for-tat bombing of Berlin had enraged Hitler. Rather than continue to prosecute the Battle of Britain, which was close to succeeding in its mission to destroy the RAF, he now made a second massive military mistake by unleashing huge armadas of bombers against London. The Blitz had begun. RAAF training was now more urgent than ever. At 2.10pm on Friday the 6th of September, almost exactly a week after Tom Tweedy's death, an Aggie on a training flight roared full throttle over Wagga at an altitude of 600 feet. The trainees in the cockpit were LAC James Oliver Borain, 18, of West Brisbane, and LAC Leslie Robert Taylor, 29, of St Peter's in South Australia. Both had been in a later batch of recruits. They'd done their elementary training at Archerfield in Brisbane and had only recently arrived at Forest Hill. LAC's Borain and Taylor were under the instruction of Flying Officer John Weston, the one-time movie star who'd given up acting because flying was a real life for a man. John Weston's life became as real as it would get in the instant that a puff of white smoke exploded from one of his Aggie's engines. How John Weston and his two trainees reacted now might be the difference between living and dying. Or whatever they did might not matter in the slightest. As they fought for control and altitude, pieces of fabric flew from the fuselage. Whatever had gone wrong, the Aggie was coming apart. They were too low for their parachutes to be of any use. Men working in an orchard four miles out of Wagga saw the Aggie approach with its engines screaming. Then one of its wings ripped away. The Aggie's nose dived, the plane spiralled and then it slammed into the earth. The explosion was heard for miles. The engines were buried three feet in the ground and wreckage was scattered for a quarter of a mile in all directions. This Aggie had been inspected, flown recently and was supposedly mechanically sound. No one aboard survived to say what had happened and witness accounts from the ground were of limited value. An inquest would return another open finding. This tragedy was, of course, another page one story. The Daily Advertiser made it clear that there was no physical glory in such a death. Quote, Each man suffered shocking injuries and was almost unrecognisable. The Daily Advertiser and other newspapers repeated the line that they'd rolled out a week earlier. Only this time, sadly, in the plural. Deaths were instantaneous. But front-page reports about this Aggie disaster were dwarfed by bigger stories about the bigger horrors unfolding in England. Every day, the Blitz was worse and worse. Every day, and soon every night, would mean the deaths of 10 or more RAF fighter pilots and dozens and dozens of civilians. It was hard to get your head around. Even though the Wagga trainee pilots' losses paled in comparison, the deaths of four young men in those two crashes 
were felt keenly. Then, around 10.30, on the morning of Sunday the 29th of September 1940, LAC Leonard Graham Fuller took an Aggie up on a reconnaissance training mission. His observer was trainee Ian Sinclair. There was another Aggie flying with them, piloted by trainee Jack Hewson with trainee Hugh Fraser as his observer. Four men, in two planes, headed for one air crash that would make history. Make history for all the right reasons. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to RAAF hero Len Fuller, Part 1, Born to Fly and Fight. Part 2, The Midair Miracle, is going to go on general release on Monday, the 30th of October. Part 3, titled Blood Moon and the Setting of the Sun, will be released on Monday, the 6th of November. But if you're an Apple or Patreon supporter, you can hear the rest of the story early and ad-free. As a supporter, you'll get every episode early and without ads, which means you can binge entire multi-part stories without interruption and well ahead of their general public release. You'll also get a show shout-out. So many thanks to Ben Elliott, Kate Maxland, Kim Sims, Stephen Carl, and MC. As a supporter, in addition to shout-outs, you'll also get exclusive bonus episodes. And the next one is going to delve deep into the history of White Death, that 1936 shark exploitation movie that starred poor John Weston. Through no fault of his own, John's only film might well be the worst Australian movie ever made. And the reasons why it failed are fascinating and very funny. So if you do want more Forgotten Australia, why not use the free trial offered by Apple and by Patreon? This free trial actually lets you download all the currently available early and bonus episodes. You can try before you buy and it's easy to cancel. But if you do like what you hear and you'd like to hear more, remaining a supporter is only going to cost you about the same as a cup of coffee per month. Supporting Forgotten Australia helps me ensure that I can pay for access to research materials, which includes books, archival files, journal articles and trips to locations and state libraries. Basically anything that helps me to bring the fuller story to you. Supporters also help me to pay for the music and sound effects you hear in each episode. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.